Again, in Colossians chapter 2, we are looking particularly into verses 16 through 19. I'll read those verses again. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. I know as you look into and read these verses, you begin wondering what was taking place with angel worship what was happening in these particular mystical type things that uh, the Colossians were being pressed upon to engage in. And uh, we'll get to that later. But as you read the passage and the context, and uh, we began earlier before we began the recording, uh, you find that everything is centered in Christ, that he's our all. And so that in whatever form, when any system of religion or so-called spirituality adds to the sole sufficiency of Christ alone and the saving benefits of his cross for life and godliness, it only adds to him and can become deceptively delusive to one. Um, our dear brother, now with the Lord George Gumbleton, he could really sometimes think spiritually. And I remember one time when speaking of uh, that we are commanded never to add anything to the Lord Jesus Christ. He made a very brief but a very important and uh, understanding statement. He said, if you add to Christ anything whatsoever, you take from him. And you can ponder that and certainly it will click. Anything you add to, to the Lord Jesus Christ takes from him. Knowing Christ, learning of him from the source that God has given and ordained, growing in the grace and ever increasing in the knowledge of Christ comes by the scriptures and by the work of God's Holy Spirit. And so we're taught, as in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They are the children of God. All who are God's redeemed children, all who are begotten of him unto newness of life, born again, all who are so are led by the Spirit of God. And when we look into the Scriptures, we're not... We're not given to think, well, this is something that uh, happens apart from God's word, from his truth. The Holy Spirit leads us by opening our hearts and our minds to the word of God. He makes known to us the gospel of God's Son, which is revealed therein. And when he illumines the meaning of the scriptures, it's always a leading to him. We're always led to Christ in the Scripture, and we shall see that 
also as we look into the passage this evening. The evening before the cross, before Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ with his apostles in John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, tells them, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. How do we know if it's the Spirit of God working? He always brings us to behold Christ. He always glorifies the Son of God. And true spirituality does not come by mystical experiences. True spirituality comes by faith, by a saving faith that always bears fruit and looks always to the Lord Jesus Christ alone and draws all from him, all the strength that we need to outlive the new life in Christ. And, of course, the apostle has brought that into the context of Colossians chapter 2 when he says in verses 6 and 7, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. True spirituality does not come by a set of do's and don'ts or by ecstatic religious experiences. So before the warnings that come in our present passage in Colossians 2, the apostle has set forth the glory and complete sufficiency of Christ alone, as he writes in verses 9 and 10 in this chapter. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, deity, bodily, and you're complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. The Old Testament, incredibly important, God making known long before from even the time of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden that he would send forth the coming one, that there would come one who would defeat the adversary. There would come one who would be the anointed, the Christ. The Old Testament presented types, pictures, shadows, what we would call prefigurements and prophecies, and all of them pointed to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They all projected forward to the coming of Christ. That's why the apostles, when they preached Christ, they preached Christ from the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament scriptures as yet. They were used, some of them, as instruments in pinning the New Testament scriptures by God, but they preached Christ from the Old Testament. And as Paul could say to Agrippa, King Agrippa, in Acts chapter 26, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, and that Christ should suffer and be the first that should rise from the dead and show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. They preached Christ from the Old Testament. There were many types, pictures, shadows that were therein. 
And when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he fulfilled everything that was written before. Completely fulfilled the scriptures. And he removed the whole obligation to the old covenant system of regulations and ordinances. It ended in him and was put to an end by his cross. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we learn that he broke down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. He removed the whole barrier because he did away with those old covenant ordinances. So to return to that which is done away by Christ and his cross is to dangerously detract from him. It is to add to him who now has completed everything in his one glorious person so that this becomes a warning from Paul in whatever form it may be found in whatever epistle he may write. Uh, for instance, if you look back a little to Galatians chapter 4, And in verses 9 through 12, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Paul writes to the Galatians who were also being pressed upon by those we call Judaizers. They were endeavoring to tell them essentially that they could believe in Christ, but they also had to become practicing Jews to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And so the Apostle Paul is refuting that to the Galatians. And he writes in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 9 through 12, But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly, beggarly elements, wherein too ye desire to be in bondage. Then he points to those Old Testament ordinances. He observed days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. You have not injured me at all. The Apostle Paul is a miracle of grace, and he's a miracle of knowledge that God gave him to understand that everything was fulfilled in Christ, that he had completed all that God had promised and that all was completed in him, and that all sufficiency is now in his one glorious person who fulfilled all the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. And so, in our present passage in Colossians 2, the apostle warns that in regard to the Old Covenant Jewish rites and ceremonies, and the Christian's liberation from them. He says, let no man judge you. Let no man judge you. There would be those who would say, you haven't kept this holy day. You haven't performed this particular sacrifice. And therefore, you're unrighteous, they would say, or whatever. Whatever, they would come to accuse and blame one. And Paul says, let no man judge you. The essence of the meaning is don't be tempted to turn again to the shadows when the substance, when the whole body of what was only before foreshadowed has now come. 
when all has been fulfilled, when these things with any religious significance is done away by Christ, crucified. You don't have to go under the regulations of the Old Testament as far as their eating regulations, their food and drink. And you're not bound to the holy days that the Jews were bound to as a religious ordinance. And then the apostle will go on as concerns religious or ecstatic experiences as in the case of the worship of angels which we will have to briefly consider later in the message the warning is let no man beguile you let no man deceive you let no man lead you astray let no man pervert your thinking as it were let no man beguile you and this will come into our understanding also in Colossians. I realize it takes a good bit and a consistent study to really learn these things. But this applies, as we shall see later, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who as pre-incarnate created all things. He is God of very God. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit brought all things into being. And distinctly by Christ, as in Colossians 1.16, for by him were all things created, which are in heaven and which are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He created the angelic host. He made them. And then, of course, we know there were fallen angels and demonic beings under the power of Satan. For Satan is the god of this world with a little g. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the great deceiver. And Christ defeated him at the cross. As in the verse before the ones we look into this evening in Colossians 2.15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing, uh, triumphing over them in it by the cross. He destroyed their work. And by the cross, he defeated the fallen angels. And he, not they, he is to be worshipped. He is to be obeyed and served and so the whole key to overcoming false and deceptive doctrine and false worship and false spirituality the whole key is to know Christ to know him to learn more fully of him and of his salvation and to reject anything that distracts from him alone. He is salvation. He is our righteousness. He is eternal life. He is our only hope. And so the apostle says, Let no man judge you regarding your Christian liberty, as it were, in verses 16 and 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, 
which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. This will require you to know fully that Christ has released his own from any obligation to the law and its religious ordinances as a means of gaining righteousness. The law, neither the law or anything associated with it, can produce righteousness in us. And so, we can learn the reason why. Everything that went before the coming of Christ, not only the appointed special days on the Jewish calendar, but all of the services and the sacrifices that were appointed for them, every sacrifice, all of them, whatever form they were of, whether it were the sacrifices for iniquity or the the sacrifices for thanksgiving or whatever form they were of, all of them have been fulfilled completely in Christ, totally by him. And now, having fulfilled everything that went before, by his cross, he did away with them. All that was under the old covenant. But he brings in a completely wondrous new covenant that does away with those things. They've served their purpose. Their goal was reached when Christ came. So now to look to them as having any binding obligation to be observed is to deny the sole complete sufficiency of Christ only. The cross alone. Faith in him alone as the believer's wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. If you've been brought as a poor and needy sinner to look to him alone, to trust him only, to lay hold of the wondrousness that he came and died for sinners, that he was buried and rose again from the dead the third day, you come to actually believe in your heart the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been brought into union with him in his death and resurrection, then, as Paul writes to the Romans, you're to consider yourself as far as sin and outward things in this world dead with him. Dead indeed under sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think that's Romans 6, 11. To be through Christ, dead unto sin is to be dead to the obligations of the law for righteousness. To any of its ordinances or any other religious observances as a means of acquiring righteousness. To turn again to the law's ordinances. To in any way look again to religious duties as a means to obtaining righteousness is to, in practice, turn from the full sufficiency of Christ and faith in him alone, and it's to be in bondage. The Apostle Paul, of course, deals with that as well in Galatians, and in Galatians 5.1, be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We are in Christ freed from these things.
And so we can consider two specially appointed days on the Jewish calendar. There was the most important day of the year on the Jewish calendar. That was called the Day of Atonement. And then the second thing, the Jewish Sabbath. The Day of Atonement and the Jewish Sabbath have been fulfilled in Christ. The Day of Atonement, the most significant day on the Hebrew calendar, that was the day when the high priest would kill a goat in the place of the people as a substitute for the people. Then there would be a live goat upon which the high priest would put his hands. He would confess over that goat the sins of the people and he would send him away. He would send him away into the wilderness further and further and further until he could not be seen never again to be seen. Christ fulfills that day and those sacrifices. So how blessed for us who truly believe and trust and know the Savior to realize that he fulfilled that type completely. For he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He has put them away as far as the east is from the west, never to be judicially brought up again against us. Isn't that a wondrous salvation? And so in Hebrews 9.12 you read, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. All of those pictures, all of those Old Testament sacrifices, but pointed forward to him. They could not actually remove not one single sin. But he dies for the sins of those the Father gave him. He calls. And those who come, by God's grace, wondrous sovereign grace to know him and trust in him, their sins have been put away by the blood of his cross. Once for all redeemed with a never again to be repeated sacrifice for sin. One sacrifice for sins forever. And at the same time, he did away with that which only prophetically foreshadowed his glorious and saving act. They were shadows. They were prefigurements. They were types that he fulfilled. So how dishonoring it would it be to him to again observe a day of atonement when the real, eternal, and never again to be repeated sacrifice of our Lord has now been completely fulfilled and the figure is done away. It's done away by Christ. Or what about the Jewish Sabbath? The Jewish Sabbath was appointed as the day of rest from all labor. But not only that, 
There were also sacrifices. It was to be set apart for a day of worship, and special sacrifices were also offered on the Sabbath day. And that means rest. But where is our rest? Where is our true rest? It's not in a day. Where do we cease from all of our own labors and truly find rest not simply for our bodies but for our souls? Where do we find that rest? The only true rest for the soul. There is none other. The only true rest for the soul alone where we're brought to cease all and any attempted kind of labor for our own salvation is in our Lord and the redemption completely finished by him. His word is come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He is our Sabbath. He is our rest. So, to again try and earn a righteousness, salvation, by one's own works or by righteous observe or religious observances would be to deny that the Lord Jesus did the work the Father gave him to do and gave him to finish. When he cried, it is finished those old covenant ordinances and sacrifices were done away. Every prophecy, every type, every sacrifice, every special day acted but as a shadow of the one who was coming. And when he came, everything before was completely fulfilled in him and the obligation to keep those things done away so in verses 16 and 17 again let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come but the body is of christ they but projected a shadow but when he came those shadows were not again to be looked to Well, we don't have any pressure now from Judaizing teachers as did the Christians in those early days. <clears throat> but should we not be aware that there are still dangers? There are dangers of turning even our Lord's ordinances into objects of worship instead of teaching aids and aids to show us that all we need is Christ and that he alone is our salvation. We have two ordinances. They all point us to our relationship to him. Of themselves, they don't save us. He saves, and he alone. Many have turned baptism, whatever form they may deem it to be, as a means of joining to Christ. Do you know what christening means? Christ in. And so it's turning the ordinance itself into a saving act, as it were, rather than the simple God-appointed picture that our union to Christ in his death and resurrection 
is the only reason for our salvation. Indeed, baptism is important. It's our confession that we have become joined to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. But it's not our baptism. Not even when administered in the only biblical way of baptism, by immersion in water, to symbolize our death with Christ and our being brought up again to live in him, symbolizing our resurrection life in him. It's through faith alone, not that baptism, that we're brought into a living union with the Lord Jesus Christ. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, as in John 3.18. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him, as in John chapter 3, verse uh, 36. I am the resurrection and the life, said our Lord. He that believeth on me shall never die. He says, by grace are you saved, writes Paul in Ephesians 2. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship being uh, uh, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Baptism has not a single thing to do with our justification before God. And justification and salvation are essentially synonymous in Scripture. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Baptism is not our salvation. And it's not to be exalted to a place which it was never designed to be exalted to. It is to be submitted to by faith in Christ alone. And it's for sure it becomes the first act that faith should perform in following Christ. And it is to be the powerful confession that we have died with Christ and that we now live with him in newness of life. But we are justified by faith in Christ alone. And so there can be a very dangerous view of baptism even. If it's not viewed in the biblical context in which it's given. And then, how many have literally turned the elements of the Lord's table into objects of worship? When Roman Catholics give bread, it's claiming that the body of Christ is in that bread turned to his literal body in them. That's called transubstantiation. So <clears throat> there can be this view thinking that these elements contribute to salvation that they're somehow 
connected to salvation. And that's to equate the elements as somehow magically turned into the literal body and blood of the Lord. And it's called the sacrifice of the Mass. As if he is sacrificed again every time the priest takes these elements and gives them out. Christ's sacrifice was once forever. That table is symbolic. There's an absurdity then that can come about that there are those who can look at those elements as if they're an object of worship. To be bowed before and worshipped. There are others that believe these elements and the eating and drinking of them somehow contribute to salvation. But there's only one reason the Lord gave for the taking of these elements. The bread and the wine. There's only one reason he gave. What was it? This do for what reason? This do in remembrance of me. It's only by his death and his shed blood and the efficacy of his now finished redemption once for all offering himself on the cross for sin that sins are remitted and that we're saved. And the reason we take the table is because it points to this and we learn that we are to trust only in him. It becomes like baptism, a heaven-given picture of our trusting him. You see, eating and drinking are figures of faith in Scripture. Did you know that? They're figures of faith. So that it's not as we eat bread and drink the wine that we derive any saving benefit. We do so to remember that our whole new life is because he lives in us by faith. I am the bread of life, he declared. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. These things are there as teaching us constantly that our all in all is in him. They're pictures that God has given. Then the apostle warns not to be deceived by those who are teachers of their own false delusions. In verses 18 and 19, he writes, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, including, uh, intruding into those things which you have not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body, by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Now, we could only speculate as to the form this angel worship took. We don't really know. And we're not taught, and we cannot discover that by historical study. But we are more easily able to perceive something of what lay behind it. 
and why it was condemned. Some of you have been taught, and you would be well aware, that in Greek religious philosophy, there was what was called Greek dualism. And what Greek dualism taught was that anything that was physical, matter, was evil. And anything that could not be seen and was spiritual was good. So you have to begin with that basis. This was something that was taught there. Not only so, but this Greek philosophical teaching and those days got into the rabbinical schools of the Jews who were dispersed or were in the, these various countries. And so it would become intermingled. So you find an intermingling of Judaism and this heathen mysticism that obviously Paul is here combating that's being pressed upon the Colossians. And it's pretty important if you understand that, that you'll understand something else. And that is that that destroys the meaning of the gospel. Because you see, in this, that later on would develop into what was called Gnosticism. It would deny the actual incarnation of Christ in human flesh. It would deny the divine incarnation. Why would it do so? Because that teaches us that Christ came in a human body. But the human body was evil of itself, if according to this Greek religion, philosophy. And so that would deny the truth that Christ had come in the flesh, that God was manifest in the flesh, that the second person of the triune Godhead came in a body of flesh and took humanity, human nature, unto himself. And so you read in the scripture often, like the apostles, like John in John's gospel, he says, the word, speaking of the word that was with God and was God and created all things in the first chapter, the word was made flesh. And you'll read in his epistle, as in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is born of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is that spirit of Antichrist. It denies the actual incarnation. Well, if there's no actual incarnation, there is no salvation. It destroys the very meaning of the gospel. And then... If matter is evil, as was taught in the Greek philosophical system, then God could not have directly created the world. It would have been created through these unseen angelic agencies. So <clears throat> this has already been refuted by the truth that the world and even the angels themselves were created by the pre-incarnate Christ who embodies the full and same deity as the Father. 
why the apostle in Colossians 1.16 says, By him, Christ, by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And that's why in Colossians 2.9 he says, In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. God incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's likely, it's likely that these false teachers that were pressing their false doctrine and false mysticism upon the Colossians taught that God then used angelic mediation in the creation. So if God created the world through angelic agency, then he could only be approached through angelic agency. This would both deny what the gospel reveals, again, the incarnation of Christ as the only mediator between God and men. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And he who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That would distort and destroy the meaning of the gospel if that was received. And that he, being God incarnate, when he reconciles to God, he's reconciling also to himself, not only to the Father, but to himself, as in Colossians 1.20 having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. And we are to trust in him only. We are to look to him alone. We are to find the rest of our souls, R-E-S-T, in him and in his finished redemption to which nothing can be added. This false mysticism, we can surmise, would easily lead itself to angel worship. What was behind it? Not a spiritual mind at all. It was the unregenerate mind of the flesh that's filled with sin and filled with self. No matter how much he claimed humility, actually it was puffed up, filled with pride, having what it thought to be so-called or supposed superior knowledge. The carnal or fleshly mind is sensual. And from it can come ecstatic experiences that deceives one into thinking they have come into contact with one's superior, higher nature, supposed. Or even the unseen world of spirits. The meaning would be something like, this man who may say he is unworthy to come immediately to God and thus invokes the intercession of angels, is in reality inflated with a sense of his own importance 
and brags about things he thinks he has seen and experienced. The fallen human mind is quite capable of producing delusive experiences that substitute imaginations for reality. And the only remedy for this is the gospel of the Son of God incarnate who died and rose again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high, and has all power in his sovereign hands. So Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 says, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Well, we don't have a lot of time to go into these, but there are modern counterparts. There's the delusive teaching of the mediation of Mary or of departed saints. Very delusive that through Mary or departed saints you can come to God. Or there's the practice of Eastern meditation where one is able so-called to contact their higher self. And even in some evangelical churches there's now the teaching of what's called contemplative prayer that really turns itself upon one and keeps their attention upon themselves. The remedy. The remedy to all errors, whether trusting one's own works for salvation, or false human philosophy, apart from divine revelation, religious ritualism, or ecstatic and sensual experiences, we have plenty of those in our day, The remedy is always the same. The scriptures become clear in showing us this. When these things are in any way trusted or added to Christ for salvation, actually Christ is rejected in practice, if not in word. So what does Paul tell us to do hold the head the head capitalized here because it's speaking of Christ we're to hold the head and reject anything that detracts from Christ alone and our knowledge of him and our desire for him our yearning to know more and more of him and our resting upon his glorious salvation. Anything that detracts from his cross alone for the cleansing and forgiveness of our sins. He has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is the captain of our salvation. He is our head. In him we live. 
He is the one we are to find altogether lovely. He is the one who's fairer than 10,000. He is the one without spot or blemish. He is the glorious Christ in whom we find all of the fullness of God and the revelation of God to our souls, the glorious Savior of sinners, the Lord of lords and King of kings. To him we look. To him we come. Him alone we trust. And that's why Paul wrote in Colossians 2, 6, and 7, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. He alone is the head of the body, the true church. And he and he alone, by his spirit and his word, supplies everything needed for life and strengthening of the true body of believers. That permeates Paul's teaching in his epistles. That's the way he refutes the errors, whatever form they come in. We are to hold the head and reject anything that detracts from or adds to him who says, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. May God be pleased to bless the ministry of his holy word.